0: Welcome back to the All Things Food podcast and to this week's episode. I am your host, Nikki Hursthouse, a registered dietitian, foodie, and yoga teacher. This week, I am in conversation with clinical psychologist, Dr. Karen Feisander. Karen is an integrative mental health practitioner and founder of The Integrative Practice, which is a holistic psychology service based in Wellington. Karen's innovative approach integrates psychological, nutritional and lifestyle strategies into a practical recovery framework for those experiencing mental health concerns resulting from chronic stress, anxiety and overwhelm. This episode talks about mental health, coping with stress, and how our food choices and lifestyle play a role in helping us through hard times. For everyone still in lockdown, I hope this episode will give you some clarity on why you may be feeling a bit flat, feeling like you're languishing, or if you've been having some harder times, I hope some of Karen's tips and takeaway messages help as well. So let's get into this week's conversation. Welcome, Karen, to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here as my guest for this episode. Me too. I'm so excited to be here. Before we dive into the topic that we want to talk about today, I think it's really important that the listeners understand your background and your story of where you've come from. So it'd be great if you could take us back to where your story begins.
1: Yeah, well, actually, it's a really timely question. I'm turning 40 this week, and so I was reflecting on when it actually did begin, which is about 20 years ago, which feels like a very long time ago, but also not that long. So about 20 years ago, I embarked on psychology training, and I didn't know that I wanted to do that when I was at high school, but um, when I was around 20, just um, sort of felt like it fell um, into my lap as sort of a, a clear career pathway. So went on did three different degrees the pathway to become a cl- registered clinical psychologist in New Zealand is generally a BA psychology or a, a BA equivalent honours or masters and then a doctorate with a research component and you complete a, a internship at the end of that so fairly long drawn out gruelling process and most of my colleagues would agree and so that part was quite clear in terms of becoming a clinical psychologist but the path to, to becoming more integrative and my approach is a bit more like a maze um, because there is currently no training pathway towards that integrative medicine which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about as we go doesn't have sort of a, a qualification as such for a clinic, for a clinical psychologist so I really have done a piecemeal kind of training process for that hunting around and finding various bits and upskilling myself but one of the I guess reputable kind of training Colleges out there is the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. So I went on and did some of their postgraduate papers in nutritional and environmental medicine, which was super helpful, but not super specific for a clinical psychologist. It is targeted to medical doctors and probably yeah, more nutrition focused health professionals as well. But it was amazing, training to come across and is still, as far as I can tell, one of the best kind of pathways to include. But yeah, most of it's really been through some of uh, the research of Professor Julia Rutledge down at Canterbury University, who's just put out her book. So just keeping abreast of all the literature and, and emerging research, which is really exciting mm. at the moment around nutrition and, and mental health. Yeah. So. So yeah, that's been about it. Yeah. So from around early 2000 to now, I've I've been a lifelong learner, really. in in this area and there's more to learn and I still feel
0: like, yeah, I've I've only scratched the surface. Such a big space, isn't it? And so the integrative practice is your business. So do you want to give a little bit more insight into how you work within that practice?
1: Yeah. So when I finished my internship, which was 2013, I was working in a mental health and addiction service in Palmerston North. And I stayed on there to kind of, there's a word, consolidate um, your learning, which is a popular idea when you've come out of an intensive training kind of program like that. You kind of want to just sit tight and soak in what you've been doing and, you know, find your feet on the ground again um, and rebalance from from the kind of endurance stage of, of prolonged study. So it was about 2016 where I actually decided to leave Palmerston North I was feeling quite burnt out from the model that I was trained to be using and specifically working in a pretty acute service where we had a lot of uh, Palmerston North is a fault line for drug and alcohol problems. We had a lot of really severe alcohol and other um, drug kind of concerns uh, that people were experiencing like methamphetamine and pretty severe alcohol problems and so I was feeling quite burnt out, um, not really doing a lot of therapy. It was more crisis management. And I just started to kind of form this idea that I could move away from that and set up my own thing if I was going to stay working um, as a clinical psychologist. And so that was where the integrative practice originated out of, was really just my own experience of feeling kind of overloaded by um, my, my work the need to look more kind of holistically for myself and then kind of thinking about that a lot more for some of my clients and and wondering about ways to kind of bring that into the to the work of a clinical psychologist. So yeah, I I moved to Wellington, which has been a fantastic move. I do love Wellington even though it's windy. And yeah, as you know, you can't beat it on a good day, and when you live here, there are actually quite a few good days as well. But yeah, I had no business training. Didn't know things like how to create a website, you know, like all of these things I had to go and kind of hunt out and learn. So all of that was a really huge learning. But luckily I sort of landed on my feet, found a really great network down here and connected with a group um, called the Ancestral Health Society of New Zealand, who's still operating. And we sort of slowed down because we, our kind of thing has been to organise international um, conferences on sort of ancestral health or evolutionary kind of topics, which has been um, really popular in New Zealand over the last, yeah, five or six um, years. But that was a really helpful group in that they were all nutrition and lifestyle kind of focused people, some of them doctors, some of them nutritionists, some of them naturopaths, some lay people and people on council. And much like the focus of kind of your work and your podcast, like really interested in kind of social issues around food and well-being and how society is set up and how food practices are, you know, and things like that. So digressing a bit into that, but they were a really foundational support group for me and a place where I could learn more as well. So the integrative practice was set up in 2016 and um, over the last six, almost six years now, has really increasingly focused on bringing in concepts of nutrition and much more of a focus on lifestyle for people who are experiencing anxiety, depression, and even trauma. And yeah, things like brain health concerns like ADHD, which is, seems to be a growing kind of concern for people. Accidentally has kind of tended more towards working with women. That hasn't been intentional. It just has been what has happened. So probably about nine out of 10 of my clients now would be female, and all of them adults. So I don't work with children or adolescents under about 18
0: yeah are there any themes of concerns when people are coming to see you that continually crop up over time yeah definitely and probably because I've become
1: more known for the specific work that I do I'm probably getting a biased sample from the general population but I would say a lot of uh, burnout so people that are just simply exhausted and not kind of recovering from that easily yeah. and feeling really hopeless about that and like they've lost themselves and mm-hmm. maybe typical psychology things don't work for them. Yeah, so lots of that. I do see a lot of people with an, e- an area called a- attachment problems. So just insecure attachment, um, which is probably like a concept, like take quite a bit to kind of get into here, but just... In a nutshell, is the way that your early life relationships set you up um, for later functioning, with how you experience emotions, how you inter- interact with others, and yeah, just how you how your whole nervous system operates. Really, mm-hmm. yeah. So
0: interesting, really interesting. And when you're working with well, mostly women now. I guess, how are you bringing in all of these different components as well as your clinical psychology background into this one whole way you're practicing?
1: Uh, The term that comes to mind is kind of like choose your own adventure (laughs) Um, because you know you're right it is extremely broad and comprehensive and there are a lot of moving parts to kind of always be factoring in and I'm kind of always at any one point in time holding those in mind as I work Mm -hmm. with someone however you know and I, I probably can be at risk of overloading people with too many concepts or too much information or pointing them off in too many directions so I'm always having to kind of hone that back and try and focus a little bit more on some of the the nitty-gritty of of some of those areas but yeah really it's there's the the, how I see it is there's sort of the tools from psychology there's nutrition for mental health which can include both food and how people are eating their food as well as some supportive supplementation Uh, and Then, of course, the lifestyle medicine factors, which is more around sleep and movement and connection and play, you know, and and screen use, you know, which is a huge Mm -hmm. thing these days. And and how much people are working or studying or juggling, you know, in many cases, families, relationships and some work and potentially study as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so many moving parts and so much to address. (laughs) Um, From your experience and for listeners, do you have any simple ways of explaining what is normal mental health versus when does it become moving towards having an actual mental health Mm. disorder? So if we go back to my original training model, which
1: uses a diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, (laughs) that's the name of it which has grown over the years to include around 300 official psychological disorders. Now, this book is created mostly for insurance purposes in in the States, and the terms and the kind of the diagnoses that are included in the criteria change um, over time and are kind of decided by groups or working groups of psychiatrists, perhaps some psychologists and researchers. So, in, in some ways, they're quite arbitrary diagnoses. They're, you know, socially bound. So, we've we've really grown and expanded, like, this idea of psychological disorder. But keeping in mind that the context really is for making an official diagnosis so that somebody can access treatment through insurance mm-hmm. purposes in, in the USA. Yeah. Um Yeah. And so... In New Zealand, we don't operate as much under that model, although some places do still. So, like ACC would be an example of where you need Mm -hmm. to have what's called a mental disorder, an official mental disorder, in order to meet criteria to access funding. So there is some need, like in New Zealand, for some of those labels. But you know, if you really think about human functioning, a model I'm trained in is acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT therapy, which considers itself trans-diagnostic, which is that rather than focusing on these sort of symptoms, which are, tend to be quite arbitrary and you know can co-occur across different sort of disorders as well, that it's more about the process that's going on for someone and how they interact with it, rather than honing in on a specific disorder as such. So in clinical psychology, there are what are called gold standard sort of evidence-based treatments. So under cognitive behavioral therapy, there there are specific models that might be used to treat, say, somebody experiencing social anxiety um, disorder, which helps them to increasingly kind of expose themselves to those feared situations where they can Mm. practice relaxation and kind of mind strategies to um, be able to be be more present and to reduce anxiety and, and in order to socialise and engage better. So there, there is sort of those sort of evidence-based approaches, but in ACT therapy, it would just kind of say, hey, your mind is coming up with thoughts. We have feelings that occur. These are natural experiences. Sometimes we like them. Sometimes we don't. Mm. Sometimes they're comfortable. Sometimes they're not. And that rather than resisting those experiences, it's about getting better at letting those come and go and not buying into whatever it is that our mind is telling us at the time. And, and the overall concept is called psychological flexibility. So being able to kind of be there with your experience in a curious, non-judging way and to not let that get in the way of doing mm-hmm. the very things that matter to you in, in accordance to your values. So it's a really nice model. It's one that I, I really latched on to. Because CBT never fit that well, I I just didn't feel like it aligned with me. It's a very structured approach, and and whereas Mm. I'm kind of not such a structured person, and I think there is something to be said for having the therapy that you use matching you as a therapist, so the sort of therapist fit. So, yeah, CBT is just sort of not my thing. Mm. Although, of course, I use parts of it, and of course, more other therapies are really on that foundation still of the research that came from CBT. So I'm not bagging CBT, but, <laughs> but yeah, I just I tend to use more act. So to come back to that question of what's the difference, really the difference is what we do with it when it shows up.
0: Yeah. yeah, like whether we react to it, whether we let it dictate our decisions and how we live and like what you said, whether or not we're just observing it and allowing ourselves to get on with the things we want to be doing or whether we let it take hold. Yes,
1: and in ACT therapy, there are very specific exercises that you can learn and practice. So diffusion is one, diffusing your thoughts or unhooking them, making space or expanding for discomfort. So being been able to let those feelings be there, and and that that last one's really important. I find that to be one of the real foundational parts of work that I that I do with people, and that I found personally extremely beneficial because. There's this idea that you have, it gets called like clean pain and dirty pain or Mm -hmm. pain one and pain two. But like, if you think about clean pain as just being your emotional response, you know, somebody dies, you're going to have experiences of maybe shock and disbelief. You're going to potentially feel really sad. You could feel numb. You might feel angry. You might get to a place of feeling acceptance of that. You know, like there's a whole mixed bag of emotions that are likely to come up for somebody at different stages as they grieve. And so that's the clean pain. It's not pleasant. You know, nobody likes to be in that, but that is a natural Mm. response um, to the loss of someone important. The dirty pain would be what you do with that in the sense of like, I'm not supposed to feel sad. Or getting angry that you feel sad or feeling ashamed that you feel sad. And so kind of stuffing it down or or struggling and resisting that, doing things to avoid it, which we're Mm. all quite good at, you know, doing doing things to avoid discomfort. Like, you know, in New Zealand we lots of people drink and yeah, just online shopping or workaholism, you know, like all of these things
0: can be ways to kind of stuff your Mm -hmm. feelings and and not let them come. Yeah. Yeah. And things I come across a lot is people use food as an outlet for stress and also to feel like they have control over these feelings rather than like what you see, yeah. that psychological flexibility of letting those feelings come and go.
1: Absolutely. So food would be like, I totally hear you with that. And I see that in my That's client right. group as well, just people that, yeah either going for the processed food or um, chocolate or, you know, things like that to mm. to soothe themselves or to feel different or to, to avoid.
0: Yeah. It's a very interesting cycle, isn't it? And it's all too common and no doubt has increased over the past year with just the levels of stress and, like you said, burnout with mm. COVID and how it's been affecting people in lots of different ways.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, and so one big thing we're going to be talking about today is combining both of our passions and interests, which pretty much all overlap, but come together quite well, is around food and mental health, and in particular, the gut-brain axis, which is a really fascinating area and something that we're starting to hear more about for those listeners who maybe don't quite understand it or it's a new concept to them. Are you able Mm. to sort of explain in simple terms what the gut-brain access is? I love the idea of
1: explaining it
0: simply. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, simply, put simply, we're not cut off at the neck. You know, we're not separate. Our mind and our gut are not sort of disconnected. And they're actually connected through our nervous system a vagus nerve which is a two-way street of information going up from the gut so what you put in your gut can go upwards and impact on your mind and your thoughts and how you're feeling and thinking and your energy and how your brain's working and it can go the other way as well in that when we're having a lot of worry thoughts or the way that we're kind of feeling about things will impact on that nervous system uh, downwards towards the gut and impact on things like how well the gut is functioning, whether it's digesting food well, whether it's absorbing nutrients from that food. And, yeah, there's, there's a part in the gut called the enteric nervous system, which is super interesting and is kind of implicated in that whole system and as well as that it, it interconnects with all the other bodily systems. So your hormone systems like thyroid um, functioning, your sex hormones, for women, your period health is all interconnected with that. So yeah, it's, it branches out to every part of your body. And that's through the vagus nerve, which is called the wondering nerve because it connects to all of your organs. Mm. So yeah, if you ever Google like a picture of what the vagus nerve looks like, it's just this quite remarkable nerve. But yeah, so it, it, it starts at the, the top of the spine and it, and it goes down through your, your body and organs and down to the gut. And it's because it's a nervous system, it's, it operates quickly. So nerves move quickly, whereas things like hormones are quite can be slower in the body, so slower messages to get around. But mm. the nervous system is, is acting really quickly and it's also using and bringing in your, your senses and your sensory nervous system, uh, which is information all around you, how safe you feel,
0: I I really liked just the very simple way of you saying we're not cut off at the head because so (laughs) often, you know, physical health and mental health are seen separate. And there are a lot of people trying to push to bring those two things together. They are completely linked and it's all one. We don't separate them out, Mm -hmm. but there is a real divide as well. And so, from your work, you do work with people who've got anxiety and depression. And from your experience and also the way you work with these people, how do you bring in that link with food and mental health?
1: Yeah, so I guess one of the main ways would be just what I do from the very start. You know, a first appointment that you have with somebody, which is often, you know, called an assessment appointment you're typically asking a lot of questions and trying to make a really good formulation of why this problem's happening for this person and what might be the causes and what might be those contributing factors that are keeping it going and therefore what might be the various solutions. So that's a training model from clinical psychology. So that's what all clinical psychologists do. But since I've learned more about nutritional and environmental medicine, integrative medicine, I guess the questions that I ask at the start are different. So, you know, for example, I was never trained to ask somebody to talk me through what a typical day's food intake looks like for them. But now that is a standard question, you know, so I'm, I'm looking for clues from that around how they might be eating or not eating, which could be impacting on their presentation right now. Mm-hmm. For example, a lot of my clients skip breakfast, they start with coffee, and they may be doing that because they feel they wake up nauseous. They're in a stress kind of response. They wake up feeling nauseous. They don't feel like eating, so they skip breakfast. They might have a coffee, which is going to, you know, add more to the stress response, but helps give them a sense of maybe being alert or kind of switched on. And then the first thing that they eat for the day might be, you know, sort of towards lunchtime, and it could tend to be a carbohydrate heavy thing that doesn't really give their brain any of the nutrients um, that it's needing for like energy throughout the day and brain functioning yeah. for stable blood sugar throughout the day. So there's just these food mistakes that are happening accidentally because people aren't either aren't feeling like eating or they're not aware of the need to kind of be setting themselves up through the day, or they're busy and rushing um, and they just don't have time. Yeah. So I'm also always asking people much more about their health presentation as well, you know, so I never used to ask about things like period health, whereas now that's something that that's really a standard question for anyone, any woman that that I'm assessing, you know, it's kind of like, what's your period health been like? What's it like now? And what's it been like over the Mm. years? And have you been on, you know, birth control and what's actually happening there and how has that changed? Yeah, so those sorts of things and asking about things like some standard blood tests, whether those have been checked out. It's yeah. really common for people to come to me, even if they have referred from a, their GP, to not have been screened for things like iron deficiency um, yeah. or B12 problems, not necessarily deficiency, but lower end B12, which I mm-hmm. see all the time yeah. in people with anxiety, sometimes depression. So yeah, asking about those things and making sure that if they're not done, that they do get ruled out or checked. Yeah, I'm also looking at things like gluten for lots of people. I've just produced a blog on celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity and mental health. And really gone down that rabbit hole of, of the intersect between that because I have recently had an influx of people with a lot of neurological kind of suspicious symptoms that don't meet a diagnosis threshold when they get that kind of checked out. But mm-hmm. they're just living with like numbness and tingling um, or weakness or just enduring fatigue and things like that. So I'm all yeah. over things like gluten and some of those cases and making sure that those rollouts have happened as well
0: really interesting yeah. one question I've got for you and mm-hmm. it's something that I mean I've sort of seen a bit in clinical practice as well is around food choices and mood and you sort of implied you know some reasons why people are maybe not able to make the right food choices are busy they're stressed but how do our emotions play a role in our food choices and also vice versa? Like how do our food choices then obviously either exacerbate particular emotions as well, like happiness Mm. or anger, frustration? Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think I would like to start the answer to that question with through sleep, you know, as a starting point, and then talk about how that impacts through the next day. But Mm -hmm. one of the most biggest contributors to having food cravings is not sleeping well so an insufficient sleep and how that impacts on some of those hunger and satiety hormones um, like uh, ghrelin um, and leptin so when you don't sleep it can set you up on the wrong foot for the next day it can also set you up with uh, more anxiety or more difficult emotions perhaps because you're just not feeling your best so people start the day on the wrong foot And, you know, if they're making some of those food mistakes that we talked about earlier, like not having a good start to the day with a breakfast, if they're skipping breakfast, you know, their blood sugar's going to be all over the show and that's going to lead to the need to lift that, you know, through short-term kind of high-interest loan foods like either coffee or sugar. And because if they're not feeling well, that ability to be mindful about it or, Slow down or sit with any of those difficult emotions can all be affected as as well. And then once somebody's getting through the day like that, by the end of the day they're starved for nutrients. They're going to be feeling worse and worse because of some of those like potential like food additives or processed foods or or whatever they have actually consumed, or sugar or coffee effects, and just be feeling tired and depleted. And then it can become a vicious cycle where it all begins again the next day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because sleep is one of the biggest things I see as well with people. They're sort of rattling off all these things they want to change. But then you ask them how much they're sleeping. It's either, yeah. well, hardly mm. any, but even if they are, it's not like quality mm. sleep yes. as well. So, Do you find
1: it's because of screens, you know, for, for your population as well that you kind of see clinically? Like a, a lot of screen use impacting on sleep because that's that would be one of the the number one sleep detractors that I'm finding
0: I mean screen use right up until trying to fall asleep for sure but also you think about screen use the amount of screen use during the day just not Mm -hmm. having other activities to help wind down and relax before bed other than scrolling through the phone yes yeah and at the moment no doubt checking news updates on the phone, yeah. which is yeah. definitely going to fuel the brain right before bed. Mm. Yes, it's not conducive
1: to a good night's sleep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one thing we've ch- chatted about with your work, and you've seen this rise in burnout and depression in the last year and a lot of it relating to the pandemic. Mm. But also it was really interesting when you were saying around travel restrictions and ob- and not going to places where we can get our vitamin D top up mm. during winter. And from that, have you seen a ripple effect from those situations and how that's affecting people's relationship with food?
1: Yeah, well, I think just on the sunlight thing, you know, like this time of year, uh, according to the research that I've looked at in New Zealand, people are actually at their very lowest right now as we come into spring because Mm. the stores that they would have had potentially from last summer are now going down and down and down. And that can have massive impacts on mood. So there's a thing called seasonal affective disorder, um, which is basically sunlight deficiency, depression. And so, yeah, this time of year is where people start to really cop the kind of worst of that. So I think from the vitamin D side, you know, it's, it's actually really hard in New Zealand because of where we are in the equator to get that sun exposure that we need in order to lift up and sustain those vitamin D levels. So yeah, that that can be difficult, particularly for people that might be prone um, to some of those mood disorder kind of symptoms. So what I have noticed um, from the first lockdown, I think we all heard about people gaining around five kilograms from that kind of month on lockdown in New Zealand. And I, I think what I've heard from my clients and anecdotally around New Zealand is because we're potentially now at home exposed to the kitchen cupboard and whatever it holds and through being more stressed and also less rewarded we're not having social connection as much none of it outside of the home you know all the things that we usually look forward to off the table at the moment just from ranging from little things through to big things that actually impacts on kind of a, a sense of like angst or kind of just like the the sense that you need something or that you want something, but you don't know what that is. And so one of the options available when you're at home is the pantry or the fridge. And so depending what the contents of that is, you know, people may be more likely to kind of grade. And also the other thing that has crept up for a lot of people was alcohol. Again, it's about kind of reward, like one of the ways, one of the things to look forward to when you're just at home and you can't do anything else but also to calm down the nervous system from the stress of it all, and mm. pot- potentially to switch off if you're working at home and you know that sort of home and work balance bleeds into your your whole day, where you don't know whether you're at home or you're at work, but you're just constantly doing something. Yeah. So the impact on the nervous system, yeah, and food cravings, like wanting either sugar or coffee or something to kind of fuel up so that you can keep performing
0: and so what are some ways that we can try and overcome that like the lack of reward and the lack of positive interactions during lockdown and instead what are some other ways of rewarding other than food and alcohol and and Mm. caffeine
1: yeah, well, I think one of the obvious ones that's accessible at the moment is movement. You know, so and we know that that lifts endorphins and helps with mood and burns mm. off stress hormones and can help with anxiety and improve sleep. So getting outside, you're going to get your vitamin D potentially as well um, if you're doing it outside. So, so obviously movement comes to mind, but I think as well it's, you know, an opposite system to that kind of seeking reward system is the contentment system. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't respond to needing something or wanting something. It really responds to being able to be really grounded and present and here right now. And that is cultivated through being able to come back to that present moment through things like breathing, practicing some mindfulness, switching off, having a digital detox, getting away, being with yourself, things like yoga can enhance it or other kind of body movements that are like more yin focused like maybe tai chi or those sorts of practices but yeah really just being able to come back to the present moment and calm everything down and then from there being able to think about what nourishes you so that's about and things that you enjoy which could be reading a great book like I know we're limited at the moment but there are you know if, if we find those opportunities that we can being creative you know in your own weird and wonderful way whatever that is you know music like those are all great forms of being able to stimulate and kind of have a bit of novelty but also not not sort of engaging that seeking system which yeah. feels like it needs something in order to kind of feel better. Mm. And because that system is, is sort of your dopamine um, system, which, which you know, it's a hunter-gatherer kind of system. It, it drives us towards getting resources that we need, but it's just malfunctioning a little bit and under these conditions because we're just on lockdown. We don't need to do that at the yeah.
0: moment. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. I like, I like the point you said about contentment versus seeking reward, and I think that is something that, You know, it takes work. It takes a lot to feel that contentment in such an unstable and uncertain time. Yeah, yes. And I
1: think within that, you know, it's coming back to those ideas of psychological flexibility that you may not feel content. You know, Mm. you you can come back to the present moment and feel uncertainty and a bit of, like, loss and grief and upset and frustration at the whole situation and that – That's okay, you know, like being able to just let those kind of come and go because those are quite natural responses to a worldwide pandemic,
0: yeah, yeah, and it's okay to feel like that as well, isn't it? Yeah, and so you were mentioning that you're predominantly working with women now, and I like that you've well integrated using that word hormonal health into the way you're working Mm -hmm. because that's one thing that. I see time and time again is often dismissed as a separate issue or I've had people who believe that there's something going on there they just know deep Mm -hmm. down that something's not quite right but they will not like no one will let them you know be referred somewhere else to get Mm -hmm. tested or to see what's going on there Mm -hmm. and I guess with these sort of the hormonal health how much does chronic stress play a role in this? Mm,
1: yeah, that's a great question and it can be a little bit like what's chicken and egg when it comes to some of these things. So, you know, um, teasing out and differentiating like what is what started what or if it has just become a vicious kind of feedback loop, but chronic stress massively impacts on all your hormones. For example, we need to feel pretty safe and relaxed, you know, in order for your body to, to want to bring a baby into the world you know so Mm. from a fertility perspective if you're under a lot of stress it can really impact on whether you will actually conceive in some cases so you know like there's a one example of how chronic stress can really impact at a massive level you know for Mm. people there are some quite uh like I guess practical easy steps that will work for a lot of people that are experiencing period problems, which are just really one symptom, you know, of of a Mm. lot of things that might be amiss in the body. But if you do a timeline back with any, anyone that I see, I will, as part of their assessment, do a timeline of symptoms and when things changed and various events that occurred that might be contributing. And a classic timeline would be someone around period, their period kind of first arriving uh, noticing that they started to have more anxiety or kind of mood or emotional kind of challenges just around that time for the first time often not always but but often they may also report that they were really struggling with with acne um, or skin issues sort of around mm. around that time, and they may be having some pain or like struggling kind of with the with their periods. And often will go to the doctor for, for either of those issues and may be put on either, say, birth control, um, hormonal birth control, not for contraception, but to either um, yeah. try and, they say, regulate periods or help with the skin issue um, or help with the mental health issue. So that's a really common presentation. And then over the years, you kind of see, you know, people kind of maybe coming on and off various um contraceptive pills or experiencing worsening anxiety or depression that coincides with kind of coming on and off these because this medication does switch off ovulation and it is providing Mm -hmm. synthetic kind of hormones so it's it's not it's not allowing your body to kind of do what it naturally does and to make these hormones which are required for for good health and probably good mental health so yeah that's a really common timeline and then women at some point wanting to come off those, perhaps because they want to start a family and they're struggling in the in the year or two after that with health symptoms or mental health symptoms or with fertility.
0: A myriad of things. I've had some people when we talk about stress and you know, we get them to report what are your stress levels like and where do they sit day to day. And, you know, some people will openly acknowledge that they're a stressful person and they generally sit maybe like an eight out of 10 of stress, like day in, day out, you know? And, mm. and I guess that's sort of an indication of chronic stress, but then other people will say that they sit like that, but they don't feel stressed. And so I guess mm. when it's chronic, it gets to a point mm. where that becomes the new normal for those people mm. and that's their sort of functioning. And then they think, well, actually, no, this is just the way I function now. So I do find Mm. that some people find it difficult to identify that they are stressed Mm. and that they have this chronic stress, but how would you define chronic stress in your expertise?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a really good point that not all stress feels bad to people. It can actually feel exciting and exhilarating and quite addictive, you know, when you're Mm. on an adrenaline, like when you're under an endurance stage of, of stress you know where you might be like working on perhaps there's a deadline coming up so you're having to burn the candle or you're juggling like study and work so you're doing overtime and working in the evenings and weekends like when you're under that kind of like endurance stage for some people it will just feel positive and exciting and addictive you know Mm. and they won't report it being a negative thing whereas for others they're going to be having like sleep problems and like Palpitations and you know, kind of their brains not working so well. So it is a mixed bag, but the body is not differentiating. So all stress is kind of stress on the body in terms of that nervous system, and you will be using up reserves and becoming depleted, you know, no no matter what. So we are designed to come back to balance to come back to a relaxation response where you can recover and heal and where your gut can work optimally and where you can, mm. you know, absorb your nutrients and, and replenish. So, yeah, we're not designed for that kind of long-term. I mean, we, we are designed in the sense to be able to rise to an occasion and, you know, get through, you know. So yeah. life is not about not having stress or not even about not having chronic stress sometimes. But we do have to be able to balance back. And Mm -hmm. if we don't, you know, that's where I often see, that's where my clients are generally sitting. They're in that teetering kind of position where they're coming out of a chronic stress episode into an exhaustion phase where their body just says, no, you know, if you don't stop, I'm going to stop you. And yeah, and then, and it takes a lot to kind of come back from that. And it it can look like a depressive episode because people are deeply tired they can feel quite unmotivated. Their brain may not be working. They don't feel like themselves. They withdraw socially. You know, it's it's not a great feeling space, but it is an enforced recovery um, mm. time, you know.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that's some really good points about what that looks like and what the goal is to come back to with that, I guess, that relaxation response. So what are some simple things that people can do every day that would make a big difference to their mental and emotional well-being?
1: Yeah so I mean coming back to that idea of sort of choose your own adventure like there are so many inroads you know so with the essence of it being how do you come back to balance you know so you can do that through your diet you can do that through adding in all those sort of nutritious whole foods making sure you're structuring your meals with protein and and healthy fats. And eating lots of veggies and keeping yourself hydrated because that can also impact on your mental health believe it or not just not having enough water can put stress on the body and cause mental health symptoms so through your sleep you know making sure eight hours of sleep are happening and that there's refreshing not just enough sleep but refreshing sleep
0: which means
1: being able to relax before bed getting off those screens Actually, like doing something for yourself, whether it's lighting a candle, making a herbal tea, reading a really relaxing book, you know, putting on some soft music, doing a bit of stretch before bed, you know, those sorts of things to really get your, your nervous system back into that kind of relaxation response. And so, as well as that, really thinking about some of those mental health tools, you know, so cultivating psychological flexibility through. Noticing your mind. You know, there are so many apps um, out there that can help people with this now for free. You know, like the Smiley Mind app is one that I suggest to people a lot of the time for just helping, you know, come out of your thoughts, coming back to the room and, and back to the present moment, being able to body scan and kind of check in with how you're feeling and make some space for that. So, being able to do that on a regular basis really tones up your nervous system and helps mental health and movement. Another accessible thing at the moment while we're on lockdown is just, yeah, really moving your body in a, in a, yeah, whatever way that you kind of enjoy, whether that's walking or if it's running or if it's doing a workout or doing yoga or Pilates, you know, you have to move your body to keep your mental health well. Yeah. So, and it's so accessible. And yet that's often one of the things that drop off for people when they're under stress as well.
0: Yeah, straight away. Yeah. So one question I like to ask my podcast guests is if you had one wish to change something overnight in the world of food and health, what would it be? I loved this question and (laughs) I put a lot of
1: thought into it because there were so many (laughs) possible choices, but I think it has to come back to that idea of that we're not disconnected, you know, that if if people could understand from a young age and if health professionals were all trained to understand those connections and that we don't have to use, you know, hefty kind of interventions, like it is those little things, but being able to offer those first, you know, yeah. before we're at that point of kind of suggesting medications, you know, because it, in so many cases people will respond to these little diet and lifestyle changes and those medications may never be needed and so to me that's just the most simple idea but it it seems to be like a radical idea you know because it's it's currently not what what happens and you know it's probably shifting now and Mm. you know this is not bagging kind of health professionals who only have a few minutes often with people but, you know, just that idea of like being able, feeling like you can talk about these things and making these suggestions to people and having people already be kind of clued up to that idea that this can make a difference. It, it, it's, it's a valid approach and all the research that's coming out now from Julia Rutledge's lab and like people like Felice Jacker over in Deakin University you know, mm. we're, we're, we've got RCT kind of research that's out there that's been replicated now that we know that this stuff can make a difference.
0: So love that. Love that wish. And hopefully the more we all kind of work towards that goal, we can make mm. it come true. What would be great is to really clarify, what would your three take home messages be to listeners? I think the first one would be that if,
1: if you are out there right now and you're experiencing some health problems or mental health kind of concerns, just really that idea that change is possible, you know, that it doesn't have to be that you kind of sit there kind of with that and that's your lot. That there are so many things that can and help you in kind of resetting and recovering from those things. and yeah, that, that changes is, is in reach, you know, in, in so many cases. And I see it all all the time, you know, in mm-hmm. my practice. So, yeah, I just think holding on to a bit of hope around that because I do see that people become very, can feel quite a lot of despair, you know, when they're struggling at the time with those things. It can feel like it's always going to be like that. But, yeah, so so the first one would be about hope. I think the second one is this idea of, you know, like, change isn't this radical thing it's it's starting small and taking one step at a time you know whether that's improving your diet you know one step at a time you know even in that area so it's just step by step and building momentum and knowing that um yeah you can use things from both your diet and your lifestyle but also some of those psychology tools so there are so many kind of different uh, avenues that you can explore And the last one would be just the idea that the process of change is really, it's a journey. It's not an end point and that it's not like we arrive somewhere one day where we're like, we've arrived, you know, and we're, we're kind of well and we stay there. Like it is a journey and it is about having patience and learning and troubleshooting and that because we are all different, some different things might work for different people and that's okay. So keep at it. And if that one thing isn't working for you, you know, there will be other things. So yeah, so really just, yeah, those are my three points, just really about that process of change and, yeah, what that looks like.
0: I love that. And if listeners want to know where to find you, because there'll be some listeners who would love to chat to you more, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so I can be found over at my website, which is theintegrativepractice.com. There, people will find around 30,000 words worth of blogs that I've produced over the last almost six years now. So there's, there's heaps of blogs there. I'm currently working on a course, which is going to be coming probably next year. So it's, it's on the way, but it's taking its time. And so in the meantime, yeah, just really you can sign up to kind of keep in the loop around that through my website. I am on
0: Instagram at integrative practice and I do have Facebook as well. That's great. And I'll put all the links to your website and the social media pages in the show notes for the episodes. So it'll be really easy just to access those. I just love that you're bringing it all together in the way you're working with people.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: it is interesting how... You say that some of these small changes are deemed radical because <laughs> it's not the way things are being done, but it's simple lifestyle changes that do make such a big difference in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. Hopefully, the listeners have taken home a few of those key messages as well. So, thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe so you can find out when new episodes are released. And if you love the podcast, please consider leaving a review so more people can discover it. In the meantime, you can follow the podcast and my work over on Instagram and Facebook at Nourish with Nikki. And to find out more about working with me one-to-one to to improve your gut health, energy and mood, then visit NikkiHirsthouse.com to book your free discovery call today.